my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club, and today is a big day, because we're talking about Orson Welles' best pal, Gary Graver. For the last 15 years of Orson Welles' life, Gary Graver was his cinematographer, but he was more than just a cinematographer. He was his indentured servant. The story goes, oft repeated by Gary Graver himself, that he called up Orson Welles, who was staying at a hotel in Beverly Hills, and he said, Orson, I'm a young cameraman. I would like to do anything you want. I'll Anything. I'll, anything. I'll help you make any movie. And Orson Welles said, I'm, I'm leave your number. I'm very busy. And then he called him back and he said, you're the second cameraman to ever volunteer your services to me. The first... It was Gregory Toland. For Citizen Kane. So it must be good luck. And that was the beginning of a a working relationship and a father-son bond and perhaps a slightly uh, abusive uh, power dynamic. Now, I don't think it would be that interesting if it was just Orson Welles' cinematographer for the last 15 years of his life. What really interests me and Will is that not only... Did he work with Orson Welles, but throughout this, because, and we'll keep repeating this as the episode goes along, Orson didn't pay him Mm -hmm. to do all this work. So Gary had to find a way to pay the bills. And how did he do that? Well, he worked in cheap Jack movies. And most prolifically, he worked as a director of pornography. Yeah, he made, what, 200 porn films? Yeah. Uh, He never signed his name to them. But in addition to the porn films, he was also a cinematographer on many B-movies. So basically, all the hacks that worked in B-cinema that me and Will love. So you got your Al Adamsons, your Fred Olin Rays, your David Dakotos, your Jim Wynorskis, Gary Graver was not only their cinematographer, he was also their friend. You can hear Federal and Ray on a lot of commentary tracks talk very nostalgically about Gary Graver and how much of a friend and a cinephile he was. And he often worked with a lot of filmmakers on their way up. Uh, the one who's coming to mind is Ron Howard, mm-hmm. who he shot uh, Grand Theft Auto for. But also, I think another thing that's interesting about Gary Graver is this podcast obviously has an auteur bias. Mm-hmm. That's definitely the lens through which Justin and I tend to view movies. And... I think Gary Graver just raises certain interesting, complicating issues, because in the last 15 years of Orson Welles' life, Gary Graver was definitely a major influence on his style. Many movies could not have been made, so that goes to show the collaborative nature of filmmaking. And also, Orson Welles treated him, I think, monstrously. Like garbage. Now, you would not know that listening to interviews or even the whole book that Gary Graver wrote about working with Orson Welles, but the way that Graver talks about Orson is insane. Like, Mm -hmm. he never was really that angry. That's just blowing things out of proportion. So he wrote a book. It was published posthumously called Making Movies with Orson Welles. Yeah, not a single bad word is said about Orson Welles, even to the point where Graver is saying, like, people say that Orson ate to excess, but he didn't really. I never saw him eat to excess. What he did sometimes was sort of snack late at night, and that sort of kept the pounds on. And, like, that is disproven madness. by hundreds of madness. people. Like, if there's one thing that is an objective truth, it's that Orson Welles did eat to excess. And, the, that's and, like yeah, a, his, his yeah. brand. It's like, and we're not saying he's a bad man because of that. It's a no, fact. no, no, it's no. A fact. Yeah. But the fact that Graver's trying to dodge around that yeah. subject, like, Orson. If you just read Graver's book, you'd assume he was a teddy bear of a man that for some reason no one would give any respect. And the last 15 years of Orson Welles' life, they were an incredibly prolific and fertile time for him. He made so many projects... 
but very few of them were actually finished and released. So on the list of Orson Welles projects that Gary Graver worked on, uh, there's The Other Side of the Wind, which we'll get into a little bit later. F is for Fake, which did get released, and they mm-hmm. did work on together. And a bunch of little tiny things like The Dreamers. Well, th- those were the incomplete ones. Yeah. You know, they shot The Dreamers. They shot maybe The Merchant of Venice together. Mm-hmm. I believe it was around that time. Uh, th- th- they shot the other major finished and released project was filming Othello. Mm-hmm. And there was also a, a talk show pilot. Something like 15 projects. Anything that Orson Welles was involved with from basically 70 to 85, mm-hmm. Graver was involved in some way. And that even extends to like when he showed up on talk shows, mm-hmm. Graver would show up as the stooge that would like be called out from the audience and then Orson would do his tricks on and stuff yeah, like that. Ma- magic tricks. Uh, and they apparently talked on the phone every day. Mm-hmm. Like when Orson Welles died, Graver said something like, geez, for the last 15 years, you know, I've just called up Orson and he's told me what to do that day. I I don't know what to do anymore. So beyond just Graver working with Orson Welles, the connection that they have together that's brought up all the time in trivia is the fact that Orson Welles edited a porno film. Mm -hmm. And usually you'll see that disconnected from Gary Graver's name. And it's just like a weird anecdote. But the reason is, and according to Graver, is that like they were editing Other Side of the Wind but Graver had just shot a porno called 3AM. Mm-hmm. They had to get it off the moviola so Orson could get in there and start editing Other Side. Well, because Orson Welles could not deal with his collaborators being busy on other stuff. No, it's like, it, it's it, like I need you now, I need you now, I need you here. It has to be right now. Mm-hmm. And Gary Graver is saying, Orson, God, I love you, but I have to finish this porn movie. I'm under contract. I need, I need to pay the rent. And so Orson Welles says, all right, Gary, I'll help you finish it. And so in 3 a.m., Famously, Orson Welles did edit the lesbian shower sex scene. So 3AM is considered one of Gary's most famous porn films. Mm-hmm. And me and Will watched it for this podcast. It didn't really do much for me. I thought it was okay. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty it, good for a porn. For a porn, it's it feels like a real movie. There's shot, reverse shot. There's a little fanciness here and there. Well, I think this was the first porn film that he directed. Mm-hmm. And you can see him actually trying. He's yes. like, I'm going to try to make the best porn film But it ever. still feels kind of unerotic with some of the stuff. Well, it's a very downbeat, weirdly slow, mm-hmm. and, and kind of... It's a very soapy story of... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm already forgetting what the machinations of the... <laughs> well, it happens at 3 a.m., as the voiceover says. That's right. There, there's a guy, and he's married to a woman, but then he has an affair with Georgina Spelvin. Georgina Spelvin accidentally kills him, you know, and and she's been living with the family. What's she, the sister-in-law? Yeah. I'm sorry, I should have made more detailed notes. But Uh, uh, I was too busy, uh, you know, (laughs) getting all lubed up for the sex scenes, you know? And it's a kind of like arty porn film that ends with somebody standing on the beach and staring off into the distance. There are a lot of really good looking shots. There are, yes. In that grainy 70s way Mm -hmm. that was like peak Gary Graver. But watching a movie like this, I was like, eh. I preferred something like A Woman's Torment, the Roberta Finley porn film. I like that there was a very brief period in the 70s when really downbeat porn movies could be made. Mm-hmm. This and Memories Within Miss Aggie would yep. be a great double feature. <laughs> um, and, you know, Gary Graver would make many porn films, and he was, I think, regarded as one of the best porn directors. When he passed away and his um, obituaries were written, the, um, what is it, Adult Video Awards? Yeah. Sent a letter to, I believe, Variety. You can find it online mm-hmm. saying, like, hey, listen, I know that you highlighted Gary Graver, 
as um, Orson Welles' collaborator, but he was also a major force in the porn world, and he won. It was like a really goofy award he won. It was one, yeah, he won an award for best all-sex video in yeah. like 1985. But that letter also pointed out that they, you know, they listed the titles of some of his best porn movies, and they said, you know, many of these films are still shown and are more fondly remembered than his mainstream movies, which I think they is, were true. is indisputably right. true. And I'm going to tell you, I watched three or four, I watched four Gary Graver-directed joints for oh, this boy. episode, and how did Gary Graver get to this point, you may be wondering? What drives a man to become Orson Welles' indentured servant slash porn filmmaker? Well, he came from a broken home, He his father wasn't around that much, and he was always hungry for a father figure. It's simple as that. Yes. And he always loved movies, and a big life-changing moment for him occurred when he was a child, and he went to a movie theater to see touch of evil and he had never seen anything like this he and finally realized what movies could do that in your face like i want to be a director and he was frustrated why isn't this guy making more movies and graver cut his teeth in the 60s working on films for al adamson mm-hmm. uh, i watched um dracula versus frankenstein for this podcast Woo! That's a rough movie. So much fun. I would not chalk it up to the cinematography. I enjoy Dracula vs. Frankenstein. It's been a while since I've watched it, but it's pretty pretty damn funny. For people that don't know what it is, it's a film directed by Al Adamson. I believe its first title was Blood Something, let's say, mm. The Blood Freaks. Mm. And it originally had no Dracula or Frankenstein. Gary Graver was still shooting it at this point, but it did feature Lon Chaney Jr. in his final role. And looking very bad. Yeah, he had throat cancer. He does not speak in the film, but he howls and grunts like a wolf man. J. Carol Nash is also in it. It has a very funny death scene. Uh, also on his last leg, I believe it was final film. And it was also like shot over five years. Right? Yes. And at one point they realized, oh, if we put Dracula and Frankenstein in this, we could sell it better. And this actually ties into our Paul Nashie episode because the producer of this uh, movie, Sam Sherman, sold the movie to a bunch of studios under the title Blood of Frankenstein and when he realized that the film would not be completed in time, he bought the Paul Nashie film, um, Mark of the Werewolf, and renamed it Frankenstein's Bloody Terror. Because mm-hmm. remember how I made a joke of how can someone owe distributors a Frankenstein film? Well, there you have it. That's how it happened. Wow, we finally got that mystery yeah. saddled. If I can uh, recommend some Gary Graver cinematography works, one movie he made that I really like is The Mighty Gorga, which is <laughs> one of the worst King, the worst King, King Kong, Kong ripoff. Where, parody. Where, well, it's not a parody, really. It's just <laughs> it feels a pretty, like it. It's just a pretty straight-faced King Kong movie. And King Kong in the movie, or the the giant monkey in the movie is just like an action figure, pretty much. It's <laughs> pathetic. Also, Gary Graver, this is pointed out in the new documentary about Orson Welles, but Gary Graver is the only person, I believe, to work with both Orson Welles and Ed Wood. Graver was the cinematographer and ghost director on a movie called One Million ACDC, which was written by Ed Wood. Uh, posthumously, wasn't he? Wasn't he had passed away no, by no, that No, 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 he was still he alive. He was still alive. Yeah, no, uh, Gary Graver and Ed Wood met. Oh, wow. Yeah. What crazy. So, you know, Where's the Gary one, Graver movie? Screw Ed Wood. One, like. one degree of separation. <laughs> I mean, he worked with both these filmmakers at opposite ends of the O'Tourist canon. I think that's impressive. So, like, when you look at Gary Graver's career, and he's working on all, like, these trasher pieces with people like Al Adamson, which mm-hmm. is, like, the bottom of the barrel kind of stuff. Yeah. You realize it's a picture of a man that's obviously very hardworking, but seemingly will say yes to anything. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what helped him continue this relationship with Orson Welles is that he obviously never fought back in a way where it's like, well, I don't want to do this anymore. This is crazy. Mm -hmm. Because every step of the way, he was with Orson. 
Well, Wells's career is a series of falling outs and I think Wells would say betrayals. People point out that betrayal is a common theme in Wells' movies from Citizen Kane to Chimes at Midnight. Mm -hmm. And uh, Wells, I think, took this very seriously in life. And Wells, of course, was a somewhat self-destructive figure. So there are many broken relationships and business deals gone wrong because oftentimes he would push these people to the limit. And then they would just leave him. They'd be like, this is enough. I can't put up with this. But Graver stood by Wells every step of the way. And Graver would just, like, he would collapse. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's uh, there's actually, I believe, there's some audio on the documentary, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, on the Netflix, where you hear Graver be like, I, I can't, like, I'm okay. Like, he actually collapses on the set of The Other Side of the Wind. And his work ethic, his devotion to Wells, cost him dearly in his personal life. Two marriages fell apart. Yep. I don't think he grew distant with his children because they did appear in his films and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But he just couldn't do anything because mm-hmm. anytime Wells could call and say, hey, I need you on set and you need to do this. Yeah. Now, that last 15 years of Wells' career... I mean, it's pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of it we still haven't seen. Mo- yeah, most it's incomplete. It, most of it's incomplete. And then a lot of it, there's a lot of hack work, like, you know, the Orson Welles show that... <laughs> With the that, Muppets are on. Yeah, and Burt Reynolds, that horrible talk show pilot, although I like it. But F for Fake is an incredible film. Filming Othello is interesting. The Other Side of the Wind, which we finally saw today. Yep. And we Unbelievable. Can, it's just amazing. Mm. And what's fascinating about that is that, like, the work that Graver did with Wells is obviously the work of someone who knows what they're doing mm-hmm. and is pushing themselves and their vision. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the stuff that he directed or he shot, and it's like, most of the time, just kind of straightforward hack, like, I just want to get this done kind of thing. Yeah, but The Other Side of the Wind, he's the perfect cinematographer for it because that movie, the style, is sort of the inverse of Citizen Kane. Yeah, it's not slick, it's grainy, yeah. it's kind of all over the place. And so, on Citizen Kane, Wells had Greg Toland, the prestigious cinematographer, the best cinematographer of the studio era. And on this one, he has a exploitation cinematographer, a guy who knew how to film on on short ends. But at the same time, he does shoot those Antonioni-esque sequences beautifully. Oh, yeah. And if you read the book on the making of The Other Side of the Wind, Gary Graver was very involved with that, of trying to figure out the easiest way to execute these very complicated shots with no money. There are just so many kinds of images in mm-hmm. The Other Side of the Wind. The bathroom orgy scene is the, uh, you know, wonderful, like, psychedelic mm-hmm. uh, dreamscape visions. And then and there are beautiful, like, shimmering black and white scenes. Uh, and all tied together by, obviously, like, Gary Graver's technical skills. And he obviously meshed with Orson Welles in a way that allowed them to execute these visions. Because mm-hmm. you can see that same style in F is for Fake, which mm-hmm. Gary uh, Graver did the cinematography for. And that is reminiscent of The Other Side of the Wind and the editing style. Mm-hmm. And it almost feels off the cuff. And it was just mm-hmm. Graver and Orson going to grab these shots mm-hmm. in this kind of like grainy 16 millimeter, like you're there, yeah. which people completely rejected when it was released. Yeah. And Wells being the kind of guy who was like, I need you to film now, now, now. A lot of that spontaneity mm-hmm. is, is evident in his late work. Uh, but not... Uh, evident in the work of Gary Graver as a director. Well, yeah. So we did a deep dive into Gary Graver's directorial career, hoping to find some gold. Yes, uh, hoping desperately to find something. I'm not sure if I've ever had a streak of movies for this podcast that has been so unrewarding. So uh, his first film, 
which goes under multiple titles, and we watch it under the name The Embracers. I had only seen in snippets, usually about the other side of the wind, when they talk briefly about Gary Graver, because they kind of brush him off fairly quickly, is terrible. It's Gary Graver's directorial debut, he stars in it, and it's the kind of film that a 20-year-old makes and thinks that people will care about. Nothing happens in it. It's Graver just wandering around Los Angeles poor, and eventually he meets a woman who falls desperately in love with him. Of course. Yes. I mean, he's so charismatic. And then it cuts to a dream sequence, and then you have Graver get involved with the woman's boyfriend and their friends. And they're kind of thugs. Yeah, and they beat Graver up, and then sexually assault uh, the woman, mm. and Graver can't take this anymore, and mm. he decides to go back home, I guess. There's an ironic shot of him walking away from the Hollywood sign, and that sounds more exciting than the movie is. This movie is so dull. It's so boring, and it's clearly very influenced by the French New Wave. Uh, at uh, its like most minimalist style well there are a lot of scenes of walking down the street and getting in and out of cars Mm -hmm. uh you know i guess from godard he got the idea that oh yeah we can film on the street and it's raw Mm -hmm. but because he shot it in 65 i think Mm -hmm. it was released in 66 Mm -hmm. yeah uh, it's 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 not good really not good it was 57 minutes long which is why we watched it you know what it's competent like it's in focus. Is it? no, like it's the story are, is kind of told. There are several nice looking shots here and there, but classic. But uh, lots of bad Los looking Angeles. shots too. Yeah, I the mean, cars on the street look nice. Yeah, to the low angle, and we got all excited. Ah, that's Wellsian, isn't it? So he didn't come out of the gate with the same force that Wells did on Citizen Kane. He spent most of the sixties and seventies again as a cinematographer. His best-known movie, according to Letterboxd, at least, as a director, is 1982's Trick or Treats. (sighs) P.U. Terrible. (laughs) And when I watched this earlier today, and I thought, wait, this is is the one that the Letterboxd algorithm ranks as his most popular movie? That bodes poorly for the rest of his career. Well, it has a cool poster. It's like a, a bag, and it's like cut in the middle, and you see an eye coming out of it, and blood trickling down the bottom. This movie is a Halloween ripoff, of course. It feels like a parody. I can only imagine it was a film that was made because Graver could cast his wife at the time and his son mm-hmm. in the two major roles. And it's essentially a woman babysitting a little monster, figuratively, not literally, mm-hmm. who just pulls magic tricks on her over and over again for 90 minutes. But also, somebody has escaped from the local Peter asylum. Jason. Peter Jason. Who he, uh, Gary Graver met on the other side of the wind. And this woman is babysitting for Peter Jason's ex-wife. Mm-hmm. And so Peter Jason's gonna go back and he's gonna kill his ex-wife most of this is like honestly played for laughs although mm-hmm. it's not exactly a comedy it's like the serial killer dresses up uh, as a woman and whoa somebody hits on him yeah it is so lame boring yes boring 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 and the suspense sequences are so boring david carradine is in it for i think two scenes yep uh steven rails back of the stuntman <laughs> and uh, charlie manson fame shows up as well <laughs> in a scene that looks like it was shot uh, in an hour because it's only one angle um, on him and he keeps being called on the phone there's not a lot going on and i wanted to die <laughs> But there is a scene where the babysitter is in front of a wall full of movie posters, and one of the posters 
is Bugs Bunny Superstar. A movie that Gary Graver shot the interviews for. I believe it was someone that Gary Graver knew that was shooting this documentary where they would interview Bob Clampett, the uh, major animator uh, of like the Warner Brothers cartoons. Mm -hmm. And so this guy brought on Gary Graver to shoot it, and then they brought on Orson Welles to do the narration of it. Yeah. That's probably one of the most famous things, I would say, at the time that Gary Graver did yeah, that's that people a, actually yeah, saw. That, that was a pretty popular movie at the time, and it's a Wells-Graver collaboration. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. That's right. And that poster's on the wall, making me assume that um, they probably shot in Gary Graver's house. Now, we watched The Embracers, we watched Trick or Treats, and then we said, you know what, let's watch one more. <laughs> What's the craziest sounding one? So we looked through the letterbox, and we looked for one that we thought sounded fun, and we hit upon Angel Eyes from 1993, which is an erotic thriller. Emphasis on erotic, emphasis on thriller. <laughs> no, de-emphasis on thriller. It's, it ain't real thrilling. Uh, it stars Monique Gabriel, a penthouse playmate. Uh, last penthouse scene, pet, I mean, sorry. Last seen in uh, Evil Tunes, <laughs> the right. Fertile and Ray joint, which was also shot by Gary Graver. She plays a troubled young woman who kills her mother and then decides to go unannounced live with her ex-father-in-law, played by John Philip Law. Uh, Danger Diabolique himself. Uh, and we also have Eric Estrada showing up uh, in his casual wear, some sweatpants, mm. playing a lone shark. Yes, yes, that's right. So John Philip Law is in trouble with some bad people already. Mm -hmm. He's taken out a big loan from from a lone shark who is mob connected. The mob run by Richard Harrison. Ah, Richard Godfrey Ho Harrison. Richard Harrison, who shows up for two as scenes, little as possible in, in this the movie. most poorly uh, mic'd scenes of the entire movie. And as Will said, it sounds like. Richard Harrison's car is parked off screen and it's still running so he can jump in right yeah. after he finishes and it's his as dialogue. If the car is drowning out his <laughs> yeah. dialogue. John Philip Law is having trouble with them, but also Monique Gabriel is uh, crazy and she wants to destroy his marriage. And you kill forgot him. something very important is that Monique Gabriel acts like a child. She carries a lollipop and her dolls around, even though she is obviously a grown woman. And this is not as unsettling as it should be, I think. It's, no. it's pretty funny. This is a movie that... Oh, uh, we all sat up in our seats when it said written, directed, and photographed by Gary Graver. Yeah. Three strikes, you're out. <laughs> <laughs> so this is 1993, and we have to consider where Gary Graver is in his career, mm -hmm. which for... Ten years, he slaved with Orson Welles and just did whatever was asked of him. Fifteen years. Fifteen yeah, years, yeah, yeah. Right up until Orson Welles' death. But specifically on the other side of the wind, hoping against hope that this movie would come out and it would prove to people the talent that he has and he would get hired for major projects. Mm -hmm. While he was doing that, he shot pornography. He uh, did cinematography on all sorts of films. A lot of them that would be known only to uh, trash aficionados, like we mentioned, um, Evil Tunes, uh, the Sibyl Danning erotic thriller, They're Playing With Fire, mm -hmm. um, The Glove, which is a really fun John Saxon, Saxon picture. Yeah. Yep. Basically, every major Fred and Ray film was shot by Gary Graver. And... Unfortunately, Orson Welles passes away in 85. Mm -hmm. Gary Graver is essentially entrusted with the fragments of The Other Side of the Wind. There's not even like a complete work print mm -hmm. to go around, show it to people, and hopefully they'll invest money to get it complete so people can finally see what he can do. And he goes to power players. He There's a story that he screened 
his print for George Lucas, hoping that Lucas might invest in it. And George Lucas went, I don't know, maybe a museum would want it. Mm-hmm. And, then, and, you know, he walked out. He just could not get anyone to invest in this, so he continued to direct and he continued to shoot these types of movies. And The Other Side of the Wind, even if he could finish it, was a very difficult legal proposition. There mm-hmm. were many people who had a claim in it. It's also a very difficult film. Yeah. That is evidently the result of people working on it for 10 years that you can see in its density. Mm-hmm. So... While this is going on, Graver has to pay the bills, and it feels like paying the bills films are all the other pictures that he ended up doing. And Angel Eyes feels like the work of a defeated man. Yes. The cinematic verve of 3AM is not there, No. Put that camera down. You want to see John Philip Law go down on a very uh, top-heavy woman in slow motion. (laughs) Ah, we got it for you right here. Can we talk just for a minute about the simulated sex scenes in this film? This is one cutaway from being hardcore pornography. Yeah. Like how long it is, how long it just, like, stays on this stuff. Mm. There's no soft lighting or candles or, like, uh, fade in and fade out. There's that cheesy saxophone music, (laughs) though. And John Philip Law looks like dog shit. <laughs> he does. <laughs> he's. I mean, listen. He's. Be, he's in this movie, right? His career can't be too hot at this point. Yeah. He. He looks. He looks pretty bad. And yeah. Um, Showing up in an American flag shirt. You know, Angel Eyes. It gets a bit boring because pretty much all the plot the movie has you get in the first 20 minutes and then it just keeps going and going and going and it's very repetitive and then it ends and we're like wait that can't be the ending (laughs) yeah and there are some laughs i would say not enough to make a recommendation exactly gary graver feels like a guy that because of the situations he was in i think his worth was more can i deliver a complete film Mm -hmm. that's in focus that the story is told within this very short period Mm -hmm. of time that can then be sold on the video store shelves as a opposed to can I make something artistically interesting mm. which is a problem when you look at his entire kind of filmography because you can feel graver going people will find out that I do things that are interesting mm. I just gotta wait like it's gonna happen another Gary graver thing that we both watched was a 1993 video documentary he made. That's right, folks. The same year as Angel Eyes. Yep. He made Working with Orson Welles, which is just kind of like a grab bag of stuff hosted (laughs) by him. Sandwiched between two hardcore pornos on his IMDb filmography. (laughs) And you just see, like, Gary Graver just talk very enthusiastically about the time he spent with Orson, the work that they did. Fun stories. He interviews a lot of people who worked on The Other Side of the Wind. Cameron Mitchell. He talks to Cameron Mitchell. He talks to Peter Jason, who who tells some very funny stories about Orson Welles and does a great John Huston impression. Talks he also us. talks to his nemesis, Peter Bogdanovich. <laughs> That's right. Because okay. Gary Graver in his book um, goes to great lengths to say that he was better friends with Orson Welles than Peter Bogdanovich. <laughs> well, it's like, I think they got along, but it's like there, there's there's part of, the, you know, there's part of Gary Graver that just has to... Gar- just give me this one thing. Gary, it's not a competition. <laughs> I know, but Gary just wants it. Peter Bogdanovich is a famous director. Like, what does Graver have? Yeah. That he shot Alienator for Fredel and Ray? <laughs> like- and this documentary, working with Orson Welles, like, you have to remember the time that it came out. There were certain fragments in it, like, Graver and Welles made this incredible nine-minute trailer for F for Fake mm-hmm. that was never shown. People would never have seen this before. Now it's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. He shows the trailer for Citizen Kane, which people probably hadn't seen that the much The alternate the trailer, yeah, that makes it look like a happy, fun time movie. <laughs> yeah, and clips from The Other Side of the Wind, clips from filming Othello, F for Fake, movies that were not widely seen at the time. Well, we should talk about filming Othello a little bit, which I think is the other major uh, work in... 
Graver's filmography, which is the like first part of Orson uh, Welles later in his career started to do kind of like retrospectives on the films that he already made. Yeah, with Effer Fake, he'd created this film essay style. Which I feel is very tied into the way that Graver Mm -hmm. uh, shot stuff as well. And it was kind Mm -hmm. of like a symbiotic relationship. And Welles wanted to make a series of these movies where he would you know, as you said, inventing the DVD commentary, yeah. where he would tell stories about the production on camera and revisit some of the locations. He was going to do another one for the trial, but it never got finished. And it's shot in a very specific way in that, like, most of these things aren't, which is, mm-hmm. like, it, you'll hear Orson asking questions off screen, and the camera will just kind of be going from, like, the two people being interviewed at the same time, giving it a really, like in the moment kind of feel as if you're in this conversation following these people as opposed to like a static looking off screen and answering questions yeah well filming filming a fellow starts with i want to say like a 20 or 30 minute monologue mm-hmm. of just wells sitting there at a table talking to the camera and there is this conversation afterwards that he has ostensibly like having dinner with two of the stars of othello and you see them talking, and then it keeps cutting back to Orson, who's... Suppo- Completely disconnected from what's going he's on. He's supposedly at the same table, and he just he says something as if he's part of the conversation, then it cuts back to them. But he's not. It's and very obvious. It's and hard to watch. What's funny about that is that the same technique is used in the uh, Working with Orson Welles documentary yeah. where it cuts to Gary Graver going mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and obviously completely disconnected from the person he's interviewing as yeah, well. Yeah, and it's clear that he's very influenced by that essay film style yeah. making Working with Orson Welles. I do like filming Othello. I mm-hmm. think it's fun. It's fun to hang out with Orson. <laughs> it is fun to hang out with Orson. <laughs> so after Orson Welles passed away, mm-hmm. again, like, we're in the Angel Eyes period mm-hmm. and Graver would be brought up and like used as a kind of mascot to champion Orson in the nineties and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But he never got the respect that he deserved, honestly, because the finished version of the other side of the wind never came out. I mean, it's just incredible that having been Wells's go-to cinematographer, his right-hand man for the last 15 years didn't get him better work. And his memoir could only be published post Humously. Yes. That's sad. And there's actually a really sad documentary that was posted by Gary Graver's son on YouTube called By Gary Graver, which is just Graver sitting in a chair talking about the feature films that he made and how they were taken away from him and recut. And he'll show you the original scene and the way he edited it and the way that it was released by the producer. And you just see like a broken down man. Wow, you know, it's just like his mentor Orson, who also had his films taken away from him. (laughs) Recut. The Magnificent Ambersons, Trick or Treats. (laughs) Moon over Scorpio. um... (laughs) Uh, Touch of Evil, you know, there's the same same thing. The Other Side of the Wind, of course, came out this week on Netflix. And in some ways, it's kind of a vindication for Gary Graver. Because we're not going to talk about it on on here because we did a big Patreon episode on it that Mm. if you want to hear us i don't know did we like it did we not (laughs) you're gonna have to check out that patreon episode spoiler we did (laughs) um and i think it is a vindication and i think that i'd be interested in people talking about him and the real brave people to really dive into that filmography yeah looking for that we only scratched the surface maybe there are gems now it sounds like we were really rough on gary graver and his output i gotta say that like i would be fascinated if someone wrote a book on him oh yeah because he had such an incredible life that is obviously not that documented and that for a long time he was pretty ashamed of 
he would say that he didn't direct any pornos for the longest time. Mm-hmm. And it was like, no, it's obvious, man. Like, you did them. Yeah. So, and he, don't, he shouldn't be ashamed. No, he shouldn't be you know ashamed. What? He was a pretty good porn director. I mean, he kept doing it, and people kept buying them. His so. film, Amanda by Night, is a favorite of Paul Thomas Anderson's. <laughs> oh, yeah. He mentions yes. it in the commentary track for Boogie Nights. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, check out The Other Side of the Wind. And, and Amanda by Night. Amanda by Night. <laughs> As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. As we mentioned, our Patreon this week is on the other side of the wind. Mm-hmm. We also watched another incomplete, uh, well, complete... <laughs> Orson Welles film, but we won't tell you which one it was. Yep, you're going to have to check it out. And you can listen to that and every other podcast that we've done on Patreon for just $5 a month. And you'll want to hear this the other side of the wind one. Our first email is from Jonathan Culp. He goes, hey, Important Cinema Club. Ah, Jonathan Culp. Toronto's uh, film culture legend. I remember when I first moved to Toronto a decade ago, and I was like, man, the Jonathan Culp guy is so cool, because he would do these screenings on 60mm, and he knew all this, like, super rare stuff I'd never heard of. And his uh, email... And now he's writing to us. (laughs) Hear that, Jonathan? Hear that, Jonathan? (laughs) His email goes... I figured it was time to contribute to the letter file since I have started listening to one or two ICC episodes a day in the last couple of months. Wow. Wow, thank you. You have been my number one source of ambient voice noises <laughs> since the baseball season ended, rewarding my attention when I have any and usefully stimulating the presence of other people when I don't. <laughs> <laughs> A recent project took so long and it involved watching and rewatching so many nondescript shitty movies that I have trouble watching feature films for fun ever since. Yeah, he's talking about a film that he made where he watched all the, like, tax shelter films, edited lines of dialogue, and made a whole other feature film out of it. Wow, that's incredible. You didn't know that? No, I actually, I'm sorry, I didn't. Oh, yeah. it's. Cr- I would love to see it. It's actually called Taking Shelter, and I feel like it's probably somewhere on the internet, or you can reach out to Jonathan if you want to check it out. And the letter continues, but I still enjoy your geek out enthusiasm vicariously, and it's probably healthy for me until my own appetite returns. Anyway, remember when you were brainstorming women filmmakers to cover and I told you to do one on Stephanie Rothman? I believe this was on Facebook. Well, I'm here to say that again. All her film I've seen are notably smart and sassy Corman product, and I know you have an affinity for that stuff. Her career only really has one phase, seven director credits from 1966 to 1974. So come on, it's an easy one, and you'll like it, please. Please? I think we should. I, yeah, I I seen Terminal Island, and I really like that one. And I've had the Velvet Vampire on my list for ages. And this is an interesting thing about Roger Corman. He employed way more female directors than major studios did. More than anyone, I would say. Uh, yeah. And, you know, there's one of the reasons for that was because he would employ anyone who works cheap. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, people people say this not just as directors, but in positions of authority all through his company. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting. And there, it's got to be deliberate in some way. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, reading books about Corman, all he really cared about is if you had a university degree, yeah. <laughs> which made you uh, smart so you could work for him and perhaps direct at some point. Mm. And the letter continues. Also, since you've tipped your hat to Edgar uh, Kennedy whenever he shows up, I wonder if you've watched his Average Man 2 reelers. They're really fun and they're awesome. Obviously, influences on the evolution of the TV sitcom makes them look even better by comparison. I haven't, but thanks for the tip. I mean, folks, I love Edgar Kennedy. You may remember Edgar Kennedy as the, uh, I think, popcorn salesman in Duck Soup. <laughs> That's right. Chico and Harpo Torment. <laughs> Kennedy can really sell a pratfall, and his goofball family adds a lot, even though they seem to be recast every episode. A chat on his films or on forgotten two-reeler comedies. Ooh, that'd be a good idea, two-reeler comedies. Oh, I'd love to, yeah. We should have Leonard Malton on to <laughs> help out. 
would be interesting in general. Leon Eros, Azupitz, Telma Todd, etc. It would be a real gold mine. Mm-hmm. Haven't got to the Patreon yet, but it seems in- inevitable as I'm running out of episode and fair's fair. Keep up the good work and best regards, Jonathan. Well, thank you very much for those two great ideas, Jonathan. I hope you're not listening to the very first episode. It's a little rough. <laughs> the but, Jerry Lewis one's good. Yeah, the Jerry Lewis one yeah. is good. Our next letter is from Tim Vermeulen, and he goes, Hi, ICC. What are your favorite titles from Vinegar Syndrome? They're going to have a massive online sale at the end of November, and their catalog is so huge, I like a list of their greatest hits. Ah, Vinegar Syndrome. Okay, first of all, question. Are you employed by Vinegar Syndrome? <laughs> That's if a- you are, please, we will sponsor you. Well, Even though get- that they should listen and they'd be like, why would we pay money to them? They already advertise for us. You know, don't sponsor us. Just send us free stuff. Put like, us on the mailing list. Yeah, if we get, like, all your new releases, we will review them at the end of our episodes. I love this company so much. I love this company. So here's what I want. I want Vinegar Syndrome and I want Criterion. I want, <laughs> I want new releases, all the new releases. Ooh, ooh Kino, Kino. Oh, Kino too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Ah, Blue Underground. Severin. Listen, let's just sign up. Let's just ask for yeah. them all and we'll just, we'll make a Warner whole Archive. Other podcast. We'll just review discs. Yeah, we'll be the new cool duder. <laughs> so, Vinegar Syndrome, me and Will just went quickly through like our favorites. And the thing is, we've talked about most of them as they've come up and we've mm-hmm. been like, oh, we should check that out. Like, Psycho Cop 2 is a movie that is fun, but it's really the discs that makes it. And I think with Vinegar Syndrome, that's the case a lot of the time. Well, also, there are certain movies that are just, I think, two obvious choices. Mm. They've put out, you know, Dolomite, and they put out Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Which, if you don't own, you should definitely own Sweet Sweetback's yeah. Badass Song. But those are sort of, like, I guess, canonical exploitation classics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I like it when they can do something that really feels like a discovery. Mm, I love that. Um, so, you know, they put out the Roberta Findlay movies, for instance. Oh, yeah, there was uh, two releases. One of them that had a woman's torment. The other one was Lurkers mm. and Primeval. Mm. But I think my favorites are... Uh, you know they they've done a lot of vintage pornography, and there are a lot, and and there are two in particular that I highly recommend. One is Corruption by Roger Watkins. We've talked about it before, I yeah, believe. which is a really weird mm-hmm. movie, and also as an extra, as a hidden Easter egg, has his great film Last House on Dead End Street, in probably the best version that you can find it right now. And there's another one called Sex World, which is a Westworld <laughs> type porn film, but it still has cat boys in it. It doesn't. No, oh, so it has sex then. <laughs> yeah, but you know it's actually kind of good. Oh. Really? Really? Yeah, like, I Well, Vinegar Syndrome <laughs> does that amazing thing where, like, we've talked to the guys that run it, and they're like, listen, sometimes it's one for them, one for us, and one for us is usually pornography. And other than that, I would recommend uh, Runaway Nightmare, which is a film that oh, nobody talks about. So good. We showed it at Laser Blast Film Society, and that's a film that is, like, a guy who made one movie, didn't quite understand how to make movies but just did his own thing and the result is just bananas yeah weird dreamy stuff an undiscovered like so bad it's good i'm not even actually i'm not even gonna say so bad it's good yeah, it's beautiful it's, it's uh, almer-esque um <laughs> in its construction uh the uh, other thing about vinegar syndrome is like a lot of things that i would recommend i would almost preface them with like well the movie may not be conventionally good in the way that you expect but sometimes the contextualizing special features around it mm-hmm. i find so fascinating because it's like this person made one movie and now like they're gonna talk about it and this was it for their life and they highlight filmmakers who, while not good, are interesting. They're mm-hmm. weird outsider artists. And Andy Milligan, mm-hmm. they did a double feature of two of his earliest movies, Seeds and Vapors. He was a really weird guy. He he's he makes Ed Wood look mainstream. We've talked about him before yeah. and the amazing uh, biography on him, the Gathley ones. He was somebody who is sort of peripherally 
uh, in that New York world of like Andy Warhol's factory. He was a, a really weird, troubled, very angry man. Yeah, and had a lot of gay themes in his films as well. And he made very loud and angry exploitation movies and seeds and vapor. If you can survive those, you're a Milligan <laughs> fan for life. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, he's the man who gave us such uh, classics as the rats are coming, the werewolves are here. That one is unwatchable <laughs> and that's the one they're, they're all unwatchable because they mostly take place on is it staten island and well, i like it when he does period pieces yeah, like right. bloodthirsty butchers is is a sweeney todd movie yeah and it's set on staten island and yeah. it is as cheap as you can get <laughs> but they've also done some really interesting filmmakers and just grab their early films like they did welcome home brother charles mm which is the first film of Jama Fanaka, who's most famous for directing the Penitentiary Trilogy. And Welcome Home, Brother Charles is like an art house, weird, almost edging on black exploitation film, which is mostly famous for one sequence mm-hmm. involving um, a sexual member that grows long and strangles someone. And that's definitely how the film was marketed, but the rest of the movie is not No, that. I mean, on that release, there's also, um, I believe it's called Emma May, which is a more straight kind of feminist um, drama that he also directed, which is very interesting. And it's the kind of movies where you're like, how has no one else released these? Like, how has Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song not gotten a proper release yeah. until Vinegar Syndrome put it on Blu-ray? They're a very good company, and they're doing good work. And we love them very much. And if you want to check out uh, something I did on the newly released Incubus uh, Blu-ray, I'm not making any money oh, so on So wait, this. you're an employee. <laughs> yeah, technically. This is buzz marketing. Okay. <laughs> is uh, I did an interview with the cinematographer Albert Dunn. You won't hear me talk to him, but just know I'm behind the camera asking questions. Fantastic. And Incubus is such a weird film where it's like John Cassavetti stars in it. It was directed by the guy who did the Disney horror film, The Watcher in the Woods, and it plays like a trashy Stephen King ripoff writer, uh, someone adapting his work by like Dario Argento, who's kind of slumming it a little. And it's super weird. And it's about a ghost that sexually assaults women. So it also gross territory but it's actually a really uh, interesting movie and you definitely want to check out that interview i did with the guy mm-hmm. which i have not even seen myself yet <laughs> oh hey one more recommendation sure go Why ahead not? fugitive girls oh fugitive girls directed by steven apostoloff written by and co-starring edward co-starring i don't even know who co-starred edward he plays two characters listen we just went to a uh, convention and i just came back with a giant stack of vinegar syndrome discs. yeah so like i'm sure i'll have more to recommend uh i could look at my shelves and some are probably just falling away from me you Usually when they release stuff, I buy like two releases of theirs a month because there's always stuff that I'm like, what is that? I've never heard of that. That sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. And I got to check it out. They are one of my favorite companies releasing stuff right now. So keep up the good work, Vinegar Syndrome, because I assume you sent in this uh, email. And if you're sending an email, send us... Send and, us well, they send it through Patreon, so I assume that they're doing a, mm. um, maybe they're a Patreon subscriber. So, oh, okay. Vinegar Syndrome, please, you know, send us another email that says, I'd like your home address to send these Blu-rays. Mm-hmm. So thank you very much for your letter. Um, as per usual, it's importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com, and we appreciate any questions, comments, whatever. Don't forget to go on iTunes and give us ratings and reviews. I got an email today that said, this month's iTunes reviews were nothing. Nobody reviewed anything. Oh, no. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, like a dagger through my heart. Wow. So if you haven't done it yet, do it. 
just give us a review and we really appreciate it. Thank you. So next week, jumping off Gary Graver, we're obviously going to talk about Rainer Warner Fassbender. <laughs> yeah. Is that a Rainer Werner Fassbender? Fassbender. Fassbender. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. It's we're going to figure it out. You know what? It's a name that we read more than we say. Yes. I mean, I want to say Fassbinder every time I see it. It's spelt with I-N-D-E-R. I know. <laughs> what, you, what, what the hell? So that's the that's level. The that's the quality film criticism that you're going to get from us. <laughs> next week so i think we're gonna watch all the like go-to's like fox and his friends uh the year of 13 moons year of 13 moons are you familiar with him as a filmmaker uh yeah uh, i so you're gonna throw a berlin alexander platz and you're gonna give that a 14 hour watch yeah probably not but i do like fassbender and i am excited to learn more about him so tune in next week for that and until then i'm justin clue i'm will sloan thanks for listening so when I moved to Toronto, the idea of going to conventions was something completely new to me. I remember going to Fan Expo for the first time, which was this big convention that, like, horror stuff and comic book stuff, and I could see people like Adam West from a distance because I could not afford his autograph, but I did get George Romero's autograph, and I remember there was no line. Mm. And beside him, uh, there was Greg Nicotero, who's now really famous because he's, like, the head, like, makeup effects guy on The Walking Dead, and he just talked to me about Scott Spiegel's film The Intruder for 15 minutes, and he signed my a DVD of Evil Dead 2 which he did the effects for and he's like eh, just give me five bucks like they wow. make me do it and that's all I want that's a that's a beautiful convention experience and that's probably not what you would get at the Fan Expo now well so Fan Expo what ended up happening is it used to be a mecca of like cheap out of print Blu-rays at this one kiosk that I would go to all the time mm-hmm. and they got rid of all of that they got rid of all the horror stuff I still like comic books but it's mostly populated now where it's like major blockbusters they want to make it feel more like you know, Mm Comic-Con, like big and important. And I'm like, well, tickets are like $50 for a day. I don't know how much I'm going to get out of that. You can spend $100 and get a photo with William Shatner. Yeah, I guess. Beautiful. I mean, I got John Yoon Bush's autograph, the Power Ranger, when I went. I remember, so Shatner was there, I think, a year or two ago, and I saw photos on Twitter of people who had paid 100 bucks to get the photo with them, and they look like these beautiful department store family photos (laughs) with William Shatner in them. And uh, it's like... Would you put that on your wall? It's like, it's so... It looks so weird. It's, it's weird and it's fake. It's like, you just went and stood next to him and, and here's a photo that makes it look like he's a member of your family. <laughs> and everyone knows you're lying. You know, when the apocalypse happens and the survivors are on the wasteland and they find that photo and they go, we shall bring this person to a position of power because they must have been family with William Shatner. That's Otherwise, right. why would they have this photo? That's right. So you never paid for any photos? I paid for a photo once and okay. I, I think you remember what it was because... Two years ago. Oh, I did. It was at a certain convention. Two years ago, we went to Horrorama, and this is the only time I've ever paid for a photo, but it's a good one. Diane Thorne, star of Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS, was there. Ilsa herself. And listen, if Ilsa is there, I will pay $25 for a photo. So I believe we've probably talked about Horrorama before, where it's a convention that's run or and kind of started by Chris Alexander, who was the editor of Fangoria uh, back in the day. And And Suspect Video, the dear departed Suspect Video. And so it's like this convention that they finally figured out the spot that they want to do it in, which is like... Not a community center, but it kind of feels like that. Like, it started in a hotel, which was too big, and they kind of moved it down to this. And it's the first convention that I've ever gone to where I'm like, I feel very comfortable asking the people in front of me questions, because the rooms aren't massive. I don't feel intimidated. It feels very intimate in a fun way. Well, I like this convention because I was so heartbroken when Suspect Video closed Mm. in Toronto. Suspect Video was my favorite place in Toronto. Yeah. Uh, And I still shed a tear every time I walk past Mervish Village. And it's just ruins now. Condo's about to go up. Yeah. 
I always feel like when I go to Horrorama, this is suspect video back for a day. It is. All this, all the stuff that I liked there, all the weird zines. That Clerk Glenn, the... um, when you went to visit him, he's like, oh, I have a new zine. And me and you were like, oh my God. And we both had to buy copies. Because Glenn, Glenn Salters, his name, he's been doing zines for, I don't know, 25 years for a long time. And I think his production has slowed somewhat of mm. late. But, you know, I love his zines. And he had, because his zines are so dense. Yeah. They are incredible works of art. And he had a new one today. And it's like, I'm back. I'm and home. like, just for people who are searching it right now, it is a zine that is about pornography. Yes. <laughs> but uh, very detailed. I mean, he's done zines on a lot of topics. Harvey Keitel. <laughs> I did find his Harvey Keitel zine in the wild once. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And at the same time, they have play, uh, people like Vinegar Syndrome and just like people selling Blu-rays that they have. We should be getting paid by <laughs> by Horrorama. For, for this well, by the time this comes out, Horrorama is finished, so yeah. it doesn't matter. But I think that it's just important, like, if there's a convention like this going on in your hometown, that you should visit it and support it, because otherwise it'll just go away. Well, I was great. I got a whole stack of weird old zines, mm. you know. Uh... Hey, people out there, if you uh, used to make zines and you have a stack of them and you want to get rid of them, send them to me and Will, because yes. we will take them and we will read them, because nothing excites me more than seeing, like, an old photocopied zine for sale for a dollar, and I'm like, well, if I don't buy this now, I will never see it again in my life. Now, the big star present at the convention this year was Linnea Quigley. Uh, subject of the last episode. Famous scream queen. We asked her three questions. At the, at the Q&A, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Which included, I believe, um, <laughs> you asked her about um, working with David Dakota. And I asked her about working with John Landis on Innocent Blood. And she gave the best story that you that's what you wanted to hear. Yeah, I mean, she, she, she was not shy about bringing up the helicopter incident. Mm -hmm. And she mentioned that, you know, in order to kind of incite, to make the actors look scared on the set of Innocent Blood in the hospital scene, he, like, fired a gun on set. <laughs> yeah. And then he was like, what, that didn't make you scared? And then he used a racial slur because he wanted that kind of reaction from her, which we will not say on this podcast. So John Landis, I don't know. Yeah, she even said that while they were on set, they were like, is he good? Is he bad? We don't know quite yet. Like, She also told a story about how the role that she got another sort of Scream Queen auditioned for didn't get it. And out of anger mailed John Landis a, uh, perhaps a star of Twin Peaks <laughs> uh, maybe maybe uh, mailed John Landis a decapitated Barbie doll <laughs> yes that's right <laughs> and I asked her about her horror work workout video and she said that it was spawned by the fact that uh, Kenneth J. Hall, the writer of, I believe, Nightmare Sisters, while they were shooting it, she had to stab someone, and he was like, wow, you look great jumping up and down. That seems like a lot of phys physical activity. We should make a video out of that. And because of that video, she was brought in front of the Screen Actors Guild because uh, they learned that she acted in a bunch of films that weren't union jobs. Wow. Well, you know... At it least, was worth it. Yeah, she got in trouble, but for art. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't ask her about dating Al Goldstein. You oh, wanted to so oh, badly. Man, I really did. <laughs> I want to hear all about it. But there's a line that you won't cross when it comes to that kind of personal I stuff. I think it's an indecent thing to ask in front of a room full of people about dating Al Goldstein. Even though that it was a full room and they were like, anybody else have any questions? And you were like itching. You already right. asked two. I You're know. like third strike. 